everyone, and welcome back to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seske. Today, I'm joined by Rose from Kunis. Thanks so much for joining me, Rose. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Rose, I'd love to kick the podcast off with telling me a little bit about your most recent venture. Just for our audience's sake, Rose has worked at firms like Uber, Apple. She studied at MIT. She's a self-ascribed data nerd. So we're going to be able to cover a lot of topics. But today, we're going to start with just learning a little bit about her seed stage startup, Sedozi. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So to kick things off, I started Sedozi about a year and a half ago. It is the culmination of my experiences from previous firms being in that CFO role and, and finance leadership role. I was actually looking to buy software like Sedozi to help with a lightweight procurement approval process and budget tracking um, budget management in one place. And I kept on coming up against these large enterprise players that were going to cost the company, you know, $100,000, $200,000 and a ton of consulting and, and months of implementation. And, and I was like, there's got to be something better in the market <laughs> than this solution. So unfortunately, I didn't quite find it. And so that's what got me going. And I think as you, if you talk to other founders, it's like you can put it away, you try to forget about it for a little bit, but it keeps coming back to you. And you wake up thinking about like, oh, like, why can't there be software to connect your vendor approval to your budgets and some of these nerdy things? So I finally sort of got it all together, got the courage to just go out and, and do it and you know, raise a little bit of money and uh, we're off to the races. Was this idea sort of incubated during lockdowns and pandemic time? I think the idea for actually doing the company was, but the problem we're solving and, and how we're helping finance leaders, like that started almost a decade ago when I had these challenges at Uber and at uh, Funbox and some of these other companies I worked at. Essentially, we're trying to provide a, a tool for finance leaders to be able to automate more of the data boring part of their job and spend more time on the business partnership and the growth strategy, things that machines can't do yet. So allowing them to automate the data stuff that machines can do now to have more time available to think about future strategies for the company. Right. So it's a huge efficiency tool. I know that a lot of the CFOs on the podcast, they have a constant reprioritization process that goes through their head of which fire to put out or how to allocate. Absolutely. One of the first podcasts during the, uh, during the lockdown, I asked, you know, what somebody would do with a you know, magic wand. And they asked for, basically they regretted doing so much work with their the resource planning because it had taken them so much manual time and it all went out the window during the pandemic. Yeah. So all of these tools yeah. become exponentially more important during you know volatile times and when you need to pivot or change strategies. I have sort of a funny question coming right up. So you've got this team. Is it remote? I know you're based down in Austin. I know yeah. you're growing your team. And we also talk a lot about culture on the podcast. And I know this is a little odd, but I saw on LinkedIn, you posted earlier today, if people knew their <laughs> co-workers' pets' names. That made me chuckle a little bit. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on how you're thinking about growing, both you know, scaling the organization, how you're thinking about pricing, since I was a big piece of your role at Uber. And more importantly, too, during this time, how you're retaining and attracting top talent, you know, and creating a culture in kind of a hybrid remote world that we're living in today. Absolutely. And so the pet post is funny. I actually don't have pets. I have two kids, but we're thinking about pets. But anyway, so we have a hybrid, well, we have a remote team. We do have a WeWork in one of our locations, but we are in Boulder, Austin, LA, and San Francisco. And I'd say the culture for the company is a representation of how I lead. And, and it started even before the company. 
Right. So in, in just prior roles, you know, it doesn't matter if someone's a direct report of yours or a peer of yours, get to know them as a human, treat them with respect, communicate, you know, be transparent. I think that type of interaction that I'd like to have with coworkers um, has helped me build the company with the people we have here, as well as the culture that we have at Sudozi. And so um, one quick anecdote is one of my, our, our first engineer was actually uh, someone I used to work with at Uber and he sent me a LinkedIn message, right? So I think for most people, it's not common an engineer is reaching out to you. And I feel really privileged and, and really grateful for that experience. But I think respecting people and trusting them and treating them as mature adults on the team will sort of build that better relationship and, and facilitate a better working environment overall. And that helps with future recruits as well, right? Like as people are interviewing, they, they see the culture, they see what's going on at the company, even in interviews and things like that. I'm sure that also really translates well to your investors to be able to showcase the quality of the team and the retention of these really amazing candidates that come through, I'm sure, all the time. So I want to walk all the way back to post-MIT days. <laughs> okay. So you intern at Goldman, the FX desk, uh, your software engineer, and then end up at Charles River. I know that a lot of the CFOs that I talk to kind of follow more traditional career pathways and the risk tolerances or adversities, they ebb and flow. I mean, we've had CFOs that have come from, you know, naval or army backgrounds through to very traditional big four accounting backgrounds through to a CFO position. Was that what you were thinking about at, at that time? Or, I mean, it's just interesting to see you go work at some of these very large companies and then be able to go tackle on, you know, head first launching your own firm. So just kind of curious as to how you're thinking about risk and your career kind of as you were getting started. Yeah. So I listened to your podcast. You have some fantastic CFOs on here. And I think everyone has a really interesting background and and you're right. Like some folks come from really different places. So for me, I never set out to have a specific career, but I knew what I wanted in my career path was to be analytical and to be able to solve hard problems. And so with that sort of approach, I had an opportunity after sophomore year to do some software development at Goldman, as you mentioned on the FX floor. So I thought this was like super fascinating. I've never thought about currencies and how you need to settle currencies and and, and why people even need different types of currencies. And so fantastic learning experience. I also coded in slang at Goldman. So that was uh, maybe a little bit useless in my current (laughs) role, but the great problem solving experiences there. Ultimately, I I did major in economics. And so having that experience at Charles River really help me think through, you know, antitrust and get deeper into specific cases of antitrust and free markets and seeing how this is not an academic setting, right? In, in reality, how do these things operate? You know, ultimately after those two experiences, I felt there was something going on in tech and in Silicon Valley. So I had the opportunity to go out to Palo Alto. I actually was a research fellow for a professor at Stanford for a little bit, and then just dabbled in the community and, and got, a, you know, network, had some nonprofit experience as well. So I felt like there was a bunch going on in tech and wanted to stay on the West Coast, wound up doing my MBA at UCLA, just in that ecosystem there. And during my MBA, I had an opportunity to intern at Apple at basically the iTunes team was just spinning out of music. And so getting into TV, movies, books, apps, all the things that are on your iPad today in terms of the entertainment that's available. And and so they were looking for an intern analytics lead to help with strategizing and looking at the data of um, what's what's in the app. So really fantastic access to data. Um, It was actually more of a data science role. I wrote my own queries. I 
it was both technical and you know business oriented. I had some queries that I wrote and slides that I produced that were modified a bit, but then showed up in Eddie Q's keynotes. So that was pretty exciting. So in that experience there had a ton of opportunities to work with pricing. So how do you price movies that have already been produced, right? Like basically zero marginal cost to put on the iTunes platform, but you still want to monetize. Is it a rental? Is it, you know, purchasing? So had some global pricing experience and Fortunately, you know, someone in my network was at Uber at the time in 2013. And they were like, Hey, like we're looking for a pricing manager because we're launching. Um, we're just starting with this like new Uber X product. It's going to be different from black car. And we need someone to help, you know, manage the pricing for this. Like, okay, that's, that's cool. Checked it out. I actually worked at Uber because I lived in San Francisco and didn't want to continue commuting to Cupertino. I was not, you know, so strategic and I want to work in this like rideshare economy, blah, blah, blah. Like I actually had no idea going into Uber. So I landed this really amazing role, basically second strategic finance hire at Uber, um, running pricing. And essentially pricing at Uber because of the marketplace, it touches incentives for both the riders and drivers. So you can set a super high price, but then give the rider a promotion, or you could set a super low price and then give the driver a driver incentive for doing that trip. So my team wound up managing like these millions of dollars of incentive budgets every week as we set pricing. And, you know, we always wanted to make sure that the pricing aligned with the goals of that market. So whether it was in New York City or Paris or Philly or, you know, here in Austin, there are different objectives for the markets, right? Sometimes it's growth, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like better driver relationships. Sometimes it's building the rider community and thinking through how, how does pricing align with the, the larger strategy. And so did pricing for a little bit, you know, fast forward at Uber, Uber company grew and I had the opportunity to essentially be the CFO for the US and Canada business and also helped out with other global businesses at the time. I would say that now I'm merging with maybe your other uh, guests where I, I now have your more traditional CFO role. Um, I'm overseeing OPEX. I'm learning what month-end close processes are like. I'm helping to close the books and report to you know, private investors at the time, putting that package together. And I really found it fascinating how when I was in the data science and analytics world, there were all of these technology and tools built to help with collaboration, help make sure the data was streamlined. You know, People weren't spending their time copying and pasting data between different Excel sheets. Um, and in finance and accounting, that hadn't happened yet. So we, we were able to build some tools internally at Uber that are still being used. Then fast forward in my career, I, I went to be VP of finance at, at Funbox, had similar challenges in terms of like trying to automate more of the mundane data tasks for myself and for my team, then move forward to, to skill factor being CFO here in Austin. And those last two roles have been really fascinating, really unique companies. But at the same time, I you know, have met a great network of CFOs and finance leads. And we all shared some similar challenges like, hey, I'm trying to do this strategic thing for the board. And then I got a Slack message asking if you could buy this vendor, right? Like, why isn't there a tool to kind of manage that, automate that process, connect that with the budget? You know, what am I going to do when I see this request? I'm just going to go into my budget spreadsheet and see if it's within the budget, right? So can't that part be automated? So yeah, that's kind of what led me to my starting the company and starting Stozy where I'm definitely still very analytical in this role and, and solving, solving problems, just wearing a slightly different hat, but still wearing the finance hat since we haven't hired anyone for finance yet. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. I mean, I think it's something that dawned on me about 
something that's consistent throughout your career. It seems as if you've been really gifted at, like you mentioned, tackling hard problems. But I feel like a big piece of that is probably separating signals from noise when you're thinking about strategic finance and how you can actually analyze some of the data, how you can make sure there aren't biases at the creation of you know what you're looking at and the queries you're building. Yeah. So I was curious if there have been maybe times, I don't know if you mastered this at Stanford or maybe during your MBA, <laughs> but if there have been times where you've either looked at a signal and thought it was something was a signal and it went you know, really well, or you misinterpreted a signal for, you know, in reality, it was just noise around a lot of the data. And maybe if you could guide us through sort of maybe just a couple of best practices when you're, you've just got such a wide breadth of experience in solving these really challenging problems. I think our listeners probably enjoy just hearing you kind of talk about how you think about separating the two. Yeah, yeah. So um, maybe I'll give you a, a quick business anecdote and then I can do a, a personal one. So on the business side at Uber, I was running pricing and as part of our interview process, we always gave like a real practical exercise. So we actually would like anonymize the data, give the data to the candidates and, and, and have them do the exercise. And one of the exercises I, I like to give was this Boston, when we launched UberX in Boston, essentially when we launched UberX anywhere, we would do these like promotional free weeks Right. And so riders would literally be able to ride UberX for free. And then Uber would subsidize the driver and pay the driver for that week. But we didn't tell the candidates it was a free week. We just gave them data on number of rides the week before the free week, the week during the free week, and the week after the free week. And we asked them, what price discount did we give during this week? And almost there's no candidate that got the right answer. Um, almost all candidates came back with like, oh, it was like a 20 or 30% discount during this week. Really the missing piece there is because the market didn't have enough drivers, you were capped on the total number of trips because of the driver supply in the network. So even if you went to free, um, you could only do so many trips. It's not like it was totally elastic and you like skyrocketed 4X or 5X in trips, right? And so I share that example to, to say like, big data can certainly help you with what you're getting at, and it can certainly supplement um, some of the answers that you're looking to find, but it can really only get you so far if you don't have some of the business context and the marketing information, the partnership information, the legal information around the business, right? So data is only one piece of the equation, and it's really important to understand what these other departments and what these other market factors are doing to impact the results that you're seeing. And kind of be careful when you're extrapolating data into future situations to make sure that that situation is similar enough to where you got your data from. On the personal front, I think, you know, one thing you know, I've actually told many people the story, like I applied to just because I was in business school, I was like, well, well let's see what career options are available. I mean, I applied to your typical consulting firms and things for strategy consulting after business school. And I actually didn't get those roles. I think and I, as we reflect back, I think I'm just better hands-on inside an organization and optimizing really like those operational things. And that was a good signal for me to kind of nudge me in a, a more analytical direction than a pure strategy direction. And so, yeah, I guess like a piece of data in, in my in personal life that have, you know, geared me towards where, where I am now. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we're talking about things on a little bit more of a personal level, do you have an idea of what you would consider a modern CFO today and what those characteristics look like for you know anybody who's in that position today or maybe even aspiring to it? 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's no, there's no one answer, right? It's not like, oh, this, you know, check these three things and you're a modern CFO. I think by the nature of how business has evolved and how uh, companies have evolved, how the remote situation has evolved, the people who are successful CFOs today, first and foremost, have just great relationship skills with their CEO, with their peers, with the board, and are able to really empathize with different people, different career paths, uh, and, and, and communicate in a successful way with those individuals. So I think that relationship skill is actually probably one of the most important. Then the second order, you just have a lot of data, right? We just talked about how much data you're getting from the business, um, especially if you're running any sort of like consumer type business, there's just so many data points and things you can track digitally in your supply chain these days. And so there's a lot of data being able to uh, understand or even like just maybe technically like being familiar with Excel or, or any SQL tools out there. Um, so having that data, uh, liking to, to manage data. And then the, the third thing is really, I think, being able to understand the trends in the market. This is potentially data as well, but not your internal data, more external data, you know, macro environments, how inflation can impact. Think through like second, third order impacts of inflation on your supply chain, on your customers, thinking about how unemployment, you know, they're all correlated, but these unemployment, how, how government decisions, how lawmakers can impact your business. And so sort of like understanding, having the data analysis on the external environment, but then also having that thesis and having that strategy around how external factors are going to impact your business. Do you think varsity volleyball would be a useful Help, you know, helpful. Uh, I was thinking about how uh, there. Well, another really consistent theme on the show is athletes are uh, yeah. really prominent in the CFO position or the founder role, and it's always fun to hear the uh, the connection between you know the the personal lessons of uh, you know varsity athletics. Um, and you and you were on the varsity team at MIT, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's awesome. So, did you play all four years? Yeah, and we made the NCAA tournament three years of the four, made it pretty far. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think athlete, uh, volleyball specifically, you know, I'm, I've lived this life, so I can make these connections fairly easily. But I think any sort of athletics um, or team sports or, you know, like, even if you're on the math team, right, like any sort of team experience can really help in this and um, any sort of finance leadership role. And particularly for volleyball, it's interesting because in volleyball, it's not like basketball. You can like just dribble down and like score yourself. You literally have to work with other people on the team to score. <laughs> so it's very hard to score yourself with, you know, with the exception of some, some plays. But I think that's true for, for CFOs as well, right? Like CFOs are not the sales leader. You're not typically going out to like close the deal and generate the revenue directly you have so many ways to actually influence the company and drive growth and reallocate resources and share information between teams that they naturally wouldn't have known. There's so many parallels in being like the accelerator in the company between playing a team sport and, and being in the CFO role. Yeah, I think, well, I was a rower back in my day, so I understand the, ne- the necessity of uh, getting your team in. Yeah. I think it's a really good point that you make. I think that especially in... Uh, early days of startup life, having that kind of shared solidarity and vision and over communicating it is just crucial to getting the team to buy in 
probably just like you would need to convince, uh, you know, your, your varsity team to, to stay in and, uh, you know, exercise well and sleep well and eat well. So I feel like there's just a, a ton of overlaps. And I would imagine that the complexity of the startup finance is a little bit easier to manage at, at this stage of the company, maybe not as much strategic finance. But when you're thinking about, and I won't ask any comments on future fundraising plans or anything like <laughs> that today, but as you envision the company growing and expanding, how do you think CFOs at earlier stage companies can leverage the skill sets that you're saying on team building and maybe leaning back on some of the lessons they learned in athletics, but also still being, um, you know, playing to their strengths of strategic finance in, in earlier days of a company? Yeah, and I think the earliest I typically see, you know, the head of finance or the VP of finance role is like a post-series A. It's it also opportunistic hire, right? So, so these people are, you know, myself included, like have potentially come in late series A, series B, typically you see that hire being made. And these times are, are very tricky, right? So open communication, you know, one thing I'll, I'll mention in, in those smaller teams is actually like probably over-indexing on communicating with your, your team, like the entire employee base. If you don't say anything, people are going to have assumptions anyway. And so if you don't guide those assumptions in a way that makes sense for the company uh, and, and reassure them, and sometimes it's not always the prettiest news, but you want to be the one communicating that news and, and framing it rather than having some employee, you know, sit by themselves and, and have the worst case scenario in their mind. Right. So getting out there, whether it's like weekly all hands or whatever the for- format is, being proactive about communicating on, on topics, including hard topics is, is very important. Then the other part is I, I think maybe CFOs underestimate their ability to actually shift strategy and impact revenue for the companies, right? Like typically you see, you know, obviously marketing and sales and marketing, uh, any sort of these go-to-market teams really being the revenue drivers. But I think that finance leaders have a unique opportunity to think about what they're spending on, how they can impact customer growth. When is the time to make slightly riskier bet? Maybe it's not right now. How do we pull back and still grow? And so there's a huge role that finance leaders can play in the growth of a company. I feel like the relationship between CFOs, CEOs, and the board can get somewhat complex, where often there's a vision coming from a founder or co-founders, and there's the you know, harsh reality of uh, you know resource planning and, uh, and runway. Yep. Have you seen any successful or maybe less successful characteristics or of managing those types of relationships? I understand that everyone has probably a different risk tolerance, maybe even you know financial situation, timelines. Every stakeholder has slightly different incentives, especially going from you know the board and investor communications. Is there anything that you kind of hang your hat on as good practice, uh, <laughs> or uh, have you seen things go really awry at some of bigger companies? Oh, yeah. I mean, without naming specifics, I think we all have seen the Uber news, you know, from five or six years ago, and then other other startups in the news cycle in the last few years. I think for me, I've only had my personal experience. And for me, what's worked well has been summarizing the key information in a quantitative way. And so like, hey, we can't do this project because this other goal that we agreed on needs the resources, right? And so being able to put all the relevant information in one place. And I think most 
most of the leaders I've worked with have been pretty rational, whether it's the CEO, the boards, the other executives, uh, and they understand that there are limited resources to, to run a company. You know, there are tricky times where the CEO will potentially, you know, not even intentionally, but there's just so much going on that they'll go to one team and say one thing, or they'll go to another team and say another thing. I think one of the more common situations is like, if your CTO wants to hire a, you know, a new team and the finance team says, no, they just go to the CEO, right? So I think in those situations, communicating what your expectations are as the finance leader to both your peers, as well as the CEO and setting those processes and guidelines, even they can be lightweight. They don't have to be like super heavy duty processes, but just having something out there that is what you expect the process to be will help avoid some of these like back channel leakages of money in the, in the company. Right. So I've been thinking about this the whole podcast and I've got to ask how you came up with the name Sadozi. Uh, well, first of all, I, the, the URL was available. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, okay, let's have it. But so I was born in Shanghai. I speak you know, Mandarin Chinese. And as I was you know, in parallel with deciding to do the company, the name is part of the exciting experience in, in that those first few months, right? And so uh, Sudozi means, it, it's not the full pinyin translation, but Sudozi is counting beans in Chinese. And oh, um, you know, we've all heard, yeah, we've all heard the bean counter you know, situation here for accountants or, or anyone in finance. And what we're really trying to do is advance the, the thinking of how finance and accounting can actually be playful and fun and, and help the company, not just sitting there counting beans. And so it's a modern take on, on finance and accounting. That's awesome. I love that. I'm glad you shared that. I want to open things up a little bit to talk about uh, one of my favorite questions on the podcast and ask if you feel like there's anything currently being underestimated in the world today. And maybe if so, is there anybody addressing those issues? Yeah, I, you know, I can give you a different answer, but my answer is actually in finance and accounting. So I think the chart of accounts and how your accounting structure is set up is totally underestimated. I think people think like accounting can't be strategic. Accounting is just like reporting data. Like, no, that's absolutely wrong. Like accounting is like actually super strategic. Like how you report your data is how you tell the story about what happened, right? So really thinking through how your chart of accounts is set up and how you are uh, managing your budget, maybe aligned with your chart of accounts or slightly differently, but having that core infrastructure and the and involving your accounting leaders in thinking about the future of the business is actually like, I think, a, a tool and a weapon that most companies don't take full advantage of. Interesting. So most people by default think that there is one way to set up their accounts and basically leave everything on you know, autopilot. And you're saying you could absolutely start in a more interesting strategic way. And you can also you know, shake things up and really, really aggressively change structures as a part of strategic finance. That's really interesting. Has that yeah. been- Or maybe uh, you don't have to like change all your accounting structures, but at least have the accountants involved in that process to understand what the pivots in the data are. And I think that's something I, um, I think there's more opportunity to do. Do you think that's going to be a more aggressive trend as data is being unearthed so much more aggressively? I mean, even in the last five years, I feel like there's been a huge mobilization of data that's just been really difficult to, to mine and unearth. I don't think this trend is going away. I do wonder, you know, if there are going to be more tools out there like yours to be able to actually garner genuine insights from that data. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it, hopefully it's our company, but I'm sure there, there's going to be room for multiple players in this space where I just can't imagine, you know, 10 years from now, the finance FP&A team, you know, manually typing in data into an Excel sheet, downloading it, sending it over to accounting, accounting, entering it into their system. And so you're going to see these systems be more connected between procurement, headcount management and budget planning, right? Like why isn't the tool that you're doing budget planning the same one where you're approving vendors? So I, I do think there is going to be more digitization in the finance and accounting world. You can see like parallel to, you know, market sales and marketing, like MarTech, if you go to any sales tool or marketing team, they, they have like at least five or six tools they're using simultaneously, right? And, and that's typically not true of finance and accounting yet. So yeah, so you definitely see that industry, that trend coming. Yeah, one of the jokes I, I hear all the time is that Excel is kind of like Atlas holding up the world still to finance teams. <laughs> and you yeah. hear all the time, get you know, get your data just out of out of the spreadsheets into more modern applications to, to yeah. gather insights. It's difficult still to to find the ones that really move the needle. It feels like this is a, a good trend, but I think we're still in an early stage of you know, mobilizing the data in a meaningful way where I feel like there's still some hesitation to to get out of spreadsheets for some reason that people like their single source of truth of their, especially finance teams. I know that's a, it's a hard problem to try to modernize something when they think it works. And for the most yeah. part, that's probably true. But I think what we're discussing now is that it's going to become a competitive advantage if you can get get into these applications early on, figure out how to use the best technology so that you're freed up to do basically the more strategic side of the role, which is, you know, working hand in hand with leadership to, to grow the firm. So I think that's yeah, an yeah, overall exactly. positive trend. Uh, yeah. One thing I'll, I'll say there, Andrew, is like, it's not binary, right? Like we're, we actually don't ask our teams to get rid of Excel. So you probably still want to use Excel to forecast an ever-changing business and, and look up, you know, have new drivers of growth and, and have your index matches or your VLOOKUP still, you know, making the forecast. Yeah. But really, do you need a CFO to be like cleaning up the data, taking out the commas and the export you just did? Like all of those data cleanup things like, we could help with so that you're spending more of your time in the forecasting portion in Excel rather than just like matching the data up later on. Yeah, that's awesome. I really love that. Um, well, it's still relatively early days. What are you most excited about in the next, uh, maybe we'll start short term and then go long term, maybe next, you know, well, the world's changing so quickly these days, but maybe next year and then maybe next three to five, what are some of the things that are really exciting to you? Maybe your team, your family, more recently moved to Austin, right? You just- uh, Yeah, just... We, yeah, we've been here for a little over two years at this okay. point. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, well, uh, I think we could just do a podcast on that, Andrew. So I'll try to trim <laughs> it down <laughs> All right. in terms of what I'm excited. I'll, I'll do like one in each category. So um, for Sudozi, I'm, I'm most excited about this trend that our customers are- um, are able to, to take advantage of, which is digitizing some of these more boring, if you will, parts of the job and automating, you know, that budget tracking so that they can focus more on the strategic components of their job. You know, one anecdote is, you know, we're, we have like a vendor tracking feature, vendor BBA. And so most companies actually budget from vendors up, right? But there are very few tools out there that actually let you know, hey, like, did you go over or under on your vendor spend? for this particular vendor. So there are these like kind of nerdy features in our app that we see our customers engaging with that we're really excited to continue launching um, and integrating with Slack and see some of these more modern workflow tools. I think broader in the industry for finance and accounting, you know, we touched on it a little bit. I think that 
there is going to be, uh, there are going to be a lot of efficiencies and more tooling and more technology coming to, um, to forecasting and just managing company finances. You know, it, it, what, you know, I was having this conversation the other day with another finance leader, like in their model, the sales capacity drives revenue, which just then drives the marketing budget. Right. And it's, the model is built that way because really like you're not going to maintain five different models for one series B company. (laughs) You're going to maintain one model, but what if the truth is marketing actually drives pipeline, which then should limit how many salespeople you have. Right. So thinking about how to actually do multiple models and manage that, like you need technology to do that with the same number of people. You know, personally, I'm in Austin. I think the companies here are really growing. There are more and more technology companies coming into the space in Austin. And we'll see where like this hybrid remote work uh, situation ebbs and flows in the next uh, few years. But I am, ex- I think that the direction is correct. And I, I'm excited for more balance within the U.S. And, and globally for talent and for companies to rise up. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting few years, I think, as well. Do you have any sort of thoughts on on the macro environment, anything that you're doing strategically now in sort of what looks like potential uh, recession indicators? I know that uh, it's still early and maybe it's a great opportunity to be building what you're building as people reevaluate you know, financials and are starting to look for efficiencies. A lot of the venture backed community is starting to slow deploying capital or that maybe the mm-hmm. early stage deals are are getting back to what used to be more normal term sheets and maybe the crossover funds are, are slowing down a little bit more as well. <laughs> but is there anything that you're doing strategically now or do you think that this actually might be a, a good tailwind for Sadozi as people are looking at their uh, at the runway and burn rates and what they can do to be more efficient? Yeah, absolutely. I think the last few months have really been great for us. You know, we've actually grown significantly in the last few months because, uh, you know, if in 2021, when I started talking to people, like the finance leaders totally got it. But it was hard to get the CEO who was focused solely, almost solely on growth to really get it right. And now the focus has shifted where efficiency, burn rate, CAC, like these metrics and what you're spending on really matters. And what we provide in our tool is an ability for team members to actually come in and see their relevant data rather than finance teams that have to go and manage five different Excel sheets for five different departments, right? And so having that finance collaboration with the relevant insights has become much more important and, and doing that with the same headcount in finance, right? So not having to hire three more FP&A analysts to do everything that you can do in an automated way. That's been good for us in terms of the space that we're building in and focusing on uh, growth efficiency. Um, I think macro, you know, as you mentioned, the, the rounds are coming down in price. So I'm a little bit of a spectator in these later rounds, right? Like we're so early. I'm just kind of, I'm, you know, as much of a spectator as someone who isn't a founder. I do think there are going to be companies that maybe wind down and probably just aren't going to be in business in another year or so as, as they're not able to fundraise at the valuations. And so I think for us, not to say I'm not worried. I'm always like thinking about our runway (laughs) and thinking about, you know, what's going to happen in the next three to six months, but I think we're a little bit far from those later round situations, but um, still, still obviously thinking about about cash and and how we operate efficiently ourselves. It turns out growth at all costs does actually cost something, which I think a lot, a lot. A lot of teams are are finding out in a really really hard way, which may actually be a result of some uh, maybe misalignment of incentives from 
venture dollars in general, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, you mentioned that you're always thinking about, I mean, as every founder is, a burn rate, and a runway and all of that fun stuff. But what are you doing maybe for other CFOs as well? Is there anything that you're reading right now or any way that you're finding time to, to balance everything? I know startup life can basically consume 24-7. Uh, so just <laughs> kind of curious. I mean, I feel like everyone had to reorient themselves post-lockdown into getting back into the swing of things and putting back all of those pillars of, of mental health and trying to make sure that there's some separation between, you know, the office your bed. Yep. And, uh, yeah, well, a couple things on my end. Well, I have some built-in disruptors. So I have two young boys. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, playing sports and going like when you're in practice and you're so intensely in something, you kind of forget about some of the other stuff. Although, you know, the company's always in the back of my head, but, but it does help to have sort of like those, those forced disruptors within your day where you like literally have to make dinner and you have to feed these things or these kids <laughs> that are running around. So that's helpful. I think for me, otherwise, I do have some in-person meetings now. So I'm always trying to put on a relevant podcast like this one, or uh, I'm currently also listening to Michael Dell's book. So just getting something audio, I, I love audio. So that's, you know, convenient to be able to do that, but having something sort of as I'm driving, uh, that's kind of where I get some free time as well. That's great. I, we're actually just launching now something really fun. I probably, we'll see if I get in trouble for plugging our own, one of our own things, but Nth Round is launching <laughs> a, a new news feed, kind of like, we're just probably like your team. We're just obsessed and consume so much kind of very curated content just like this podcast yeah yep. just yeah it's pretty niche but it's so relevant to us so we launched our own nthround.com slash newsfeed just to post all the stuff that we're consuming on a daily basis whether it's oh, that's awesome fintech or podcasts and it's been so cool because i you know it's kind of like what you mentioned about building your culture like do you know your coworkers' pets names and all of that really fun stuff it's really interesting to see the breadth and diversity of how people consume you know, relevant industry kind of information because it's really spread out how our team does it because we've yeah. got diversity on our team, especially across age groups. So just even, you know, and I'm, I like, I can do podcasts and news all the time, but I also have a physical Wall Street Journal come to me and every day. So we're all, <laughs> nice. we're all, all over the place, but um, yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to share kind of cool thoughts because it spurs so much really lively conversation, which ends up being you know, both team building and sometimes it ends up into product conversations. So yep, uh, absolutely. For, uh, for the team. Well, I do want to give everyone the opportunity to get in contact with you if they're interested in learning more. So what's the best way for somebody to reach out to you? Is it via LinkedIn or email or through the website? Yeah, um, our website is, is totally great. I'm, you know, there's a chat bot on there. Happy to chat with you. It's sudozi, S-U-D-O-Z-I.com. Um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I actually use my, my main name. It's R-O-S-E-Z-H-O-N-G. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn there. And yeah, excited to, to chat. Happy to, to share more about anything we discussed here. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes for everyone to go check out the company. And I wanted to say thank you so much, Rose, for joining me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can stay in touch. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Andrew. 